This is an episode of The Ramp, a podcast produced by Deloitte Digital. Welcome to our listeners across six of the seven continents. Uh, if you're at home, uh, kick off your shoes. If you're traveling in the car, uh, settle deeper into your seat. Because if you're listening from the Netherlands, uh, your top reason for dialing into a podcast is for relaxation. Um, Bart, I know that 45% of our listeners are female and 54% are male. They are, yeah. We've got about an even distribution of age, with the biggest uh, segment being 28 to 34 years. But uh, would you consider them early adopters? Um, yeah, I, I think they are early adopters. Yeah, of course, we've only been existing for, well, about one and a half years with, um, well, at first bi-monthly episodes and now uh, once a month. So, yeah, I think um, the people that joined on this train already are uh, early adopters, yeah. Nice. Well, then maybe uh, we might see them adopting one of the early trends, which is uh, buddy listening. Uh, that's when you uh, put your podcast out on your uh, speaker set and listen with a friend. So uh, if you're listening with a friend today, <laughs> enjoy. Uh, if you're not, uh, just listening by yourself. Oh, uh, that's it. Exactly. You're still not part of the majority if you're listening by yourself, but uh, there's always the next episode. Hi, welcome everyone. My name is Bart, and together with Mo and our two guests, Abby and Ollie, we have made this episode about insights. You just saw them introduce the topic already a bit. But during this episode, we'll dive deeper into what we actually mean with insights, uh, along with a few cool examples and stories that we have. After listening to this episode, you will know how and when to do research, what some pitfalls are, and how to convince your boss that it's absolutely necessary to do research to get the best possible results. But for now, as Abby just said, relax and enjoy while we begin with the introduction of our two guests. Hi, I'm Abby Gilkoch. You can call me Abby. Um, from my accent, you can... Probably, yes, I'm from the southern country in Africa. I uh, studied anthropology there. That's something I share with Holly. Uh, anthrop means human. So we both studied how to study humans. And uh, since then, I've been working at Deloitte in South Africa and in the Netherlands on innovation projects, all with a bit of a customer research flair. Cool. Holly? Uh, my name is Holly Robbins. Uh, I come to uh, Deloitte from academia, where my expertise is about yeah, researching people, but also trying to figure out how to research uh, complex, hard, ambiguous topics. And I joined Deloitte the Netherlands about a year and a half ago to help uh, build this uh, insights capability that we have here. So to figure out how can we research questions in a practical and grounded and insightful way. Awesome. Welcome. Uh, very happy that you're both uh, both here. Today we're going to talk about insights, uh, a topic that I thought I knew, but uh, of course uh, a while ago we had our training of you about insights, and in the end apparently I didn't know what insights were. So let's start with a definition. Could you help me out? What do insights actually mean? So insights we define as a, a grounded uh, perspective on your on your customer on the question at hand that. Uh, has implications for both strategy and design. So we don't want to just give you a finding, but also help you understand what does it mean? What is the implication of this? How can we leverage this knowledge and into a practical application? 
So it's taking data and findings to the next step where you can use them. Well, everywhere you hear, like research is important. Research leads to surprising things when you talk to your customer, etc. But then how how is this, like, how can you do that? Because uh, one thing that you also hear often is that research is expensive. Um, is it though? Uh, and how can you make it not that expensive? And what can other companies do? I think you you always get what you pay for. And so there's, there is cheap ways to do research, but sometimes um, you get a smaller picture. Uh, so you find that if you're trying to interview people, you can interview uh, just five and get pretty good insights. But if you can afford to move that number up to 15, you can start to see real patterns developing and see uh, real edge cases. Uh, so I would recommend people who are tight in budget to just go ahead anyways, because you probably will get about uh, the themes in about 50% of the population with just five. Um, but where you can afford to cross uh, that with other methodologies, uh, you will just get such rich, uh, richer findings. You mentioned other methodologies. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so um, for example, uh, take a song. Um, you can usually recognize it with just a few notes. Uh, but if you start to add some chords and some harmonies, uh, it gets so much richer and uh, you can be so much more certain that it's the song you're thinking about. Uh, and it's really the same with methods. Uh, so the more methods that you can do, um, and we especially uh, advise you to combine quantitative and qualitative methods, uh, the richer your view of your customers will be and the more sure you can be that you've got the right findings. Yeah, so I was thinking about what you just said and um, well, I've been focused a lot on, on uh, doing UX research where uh, based on practice, I kind of know that around five, six user tests, I tend to find similar patterns and the seventh, I usually zone out myself because I'm like, okay, I heard this already five times and you're the seventh. <laughs> I don't know how that add, adds up because I just mentioned uh, five and seven, but it doesn't matter. Uh, so I guess there are different like numbers for different types of research and research methodologies. Can you give an elaborate on that piece? I think another really, I think what you're speaking to Mo is this, this concept called saturation point. So what's at the, what is the point where you have, started to see patterns, started to kind of uh, recognize that you have accumulated all the findings that you're going to accumulate. And I think usability testing is a good example. You have a lot of experience with that and have really found that limit, basically. But it really depends on the question that you're asking, the scope of, of who it applies to, what that saturation point will be. And there's all sorts of different ways to calculate it. I think Abby gave a really good explanation of that. I think one example I could illustrate this with is uh, in our in our project that um, about sustainable housing, trying to find uh, what motivates people to renovate their homes. We interviewed 15 people. This was um, w this was what we kind of identified in our preliminary research would be a good uh, population size. Found all sorts of different things, uh, different patterns, and there was one thing that was only mentioned by one. We found that one participant that we interviewed really 
demonstrated unique patterns. You know, they were the ones that were doing the research themselves, felt very confident about what they were learning, and were going down the street and knocking on the doors and saying to their neighbors, hey, do you want to join me on this uh, process? And we'll get a discount together or something like that. So that was one out of 15. So that's pretty small. But because of our previous research, we we knew that this was probably much bigger pattern than that that data would suggest. So is your sample size then a bit skewed or what 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 what's going on here? Or is he just an outlier and very important happened to be? Yeah. Your second. We knew that the, that person was an outlier, but an extremely important outlier. How, how did you know that? Because like, it's, it's an outlier. Usually we tend to ignore those. Like if I reflect back at like my experience, like, oh, it's just NS1. It's just one person saying this is probably not that important. But. Yeah, absolutely. In previous, re in previous interviews, some of the people that we spoke to kind of mentioned in passing the role that their neighbor had played. And then, you know, we, we just picked up on these subtle cues of people, you know, trying to decide whether or not they should do in do some kind of investment and then just looking out their window to seeing if their neighbors had done it. But we only found one neighbor that actually was the person that was going to door to door to knock. Amazing. Okay. So yeah, usually I, I, I tend to look at like each participant as an individual and like, like look for common themes and then try to combine it. But I think it's, it's also a good practice to combine the general knowledge of all the participants into what can this lead to. And that's what kind of in this project uh, like came out of. And what we called this person was the instigator because we found their, their amplifying effect. So that, that's why they were important is um, because they went and activate, activated five other people, the fact that the percentage of them in the market was very small didn't matter because we could times them by five if we could use It was very them. effective. Yes. Before we continue, let's do a small recap on what we've learned so far. We now know that insights aren't the same as data or findings. And when doing research, it's better to combine different types of methods, especially qualitative and quantitative. And from all these and Abby's experiences, we've come to find that just one person can have a very large influence on the insights that you gain from your research. And remember this specific case, because we will come back to it later in the episode. But let's first talk about something very important, the costs of doing research. I'm a, this sounds to me like a very expensive and big research, because it's like 15 respondents. I always, like whenever I'm on a project and there is no research included in the budget, I just tend to go guerrilla testing. That's also a way of, of doing it because I think it's important to go out there and talk to people. I know we did not, like, we didn't calculate it into the budget, but having this perspective of your users look at it or like anyone actually not involved in it is so important and guerrilla testing doesn't have to be expensive it's just you go out there you out of like natural curiosity i would say you you should be doing that like if, if we we're talking now about usability testing and stuff uh, and that doesn't have to be expensive so I, like i think in general research shouldn't be like it's now no reason to say now we are not doing research because it's expensive i think it's a, a false uh, reasoning is that is that correct or do you think it is expensive if you're not gonna do it properly? <laughs> I really think it depends on the question that you're asking. If if the question is really a sense check, like is this yellow too yellow, then you know guerrilla testing really makes a lot of sense. You know you're getting a, a perspective that's literally outside of your own. If we're talking about more systematic, you know, societal challenges, 
guerrilla testing was only really going to help you depending on how you scope that that testing. So if you're on the street in a neighborhood just asking people, um, I'm going to use the example again of the housing, you know, what's the story here? You're not going to really get a representative sample of that larger societal challenge. So it's the type of question and the depth of the insight that you need out of it. And that kind of helps to define which methodology you should use, right? Absolutely. And um, reflecting on your question about funding, I think that this is quite a difficult question because what Holly's mentioning in this very explorative research, when you're looking for options that you maybe don't know exist yet, it can sometimes be difficult to go to your boss and ask for funding for something you don't know exists yet. But I think we should be a bit creative um, and open up some space because most of human behavior is not rational. Um, and so if you're just coming up with the rational options for why people are doing something, it's likely not the case. And if you happen to find something really interesting, like we found this uh, instigator, the chances of your competitors knowing about it are also less. And so although it's difficult to justify upfront, what we can maybe do is think about some of the examples uh, that we see in research where adding this little bit of investment in the beginning made the difference between a make or break of a company's product. So there's always a, re a reason to do research. I mean, yes. And <laughs> is that enough to convince people or bosses mainly to invest in research? Or are there any other reasons uh, on how to convince like your, your lead or your uh, boss to do or to invest in this uh, research? Yep, so if your boss cares more about saving money, um, Another way you can argue about research is uh, once your product has been released in the market, it's a hundred times more expensive to make changes to it um, when you realize that customers don't want to buy it than if you had asked right in the beginning in the design phase, what do you want? Okay, so I, I guess the question, what do you want, is, is not explicitly asked during the research phase, but it's like the, the entire research about it. But then how do you convince that the research is going to deviate from whatever whatever the result would be if, if we just didn't do it without uh, research. So what I'm trying to say is like, it's usually very hard to convince the end that the end result will be better than uh, with, uh, with, with research uh, opposed to without. Uh, so I can give you an example. Um, uh, in uh, South Africa, uh, we were hired by a large bank to implement a CRM system. And when we started doing some research on what the employees wanted, we found that that CRM system already existed. Um, but no, the, the, with the exact technology, but nobody was using it. And this is because these were bankers who were making phone calls uh, all day to their clients. And every time they had a phone call, they had to fill in a million different fields on how that phone call went. And what happened was that the bankers just realized that uh, this was going to take too long and they completely discarded the system. And so then the company went and hired Deloitte to implement the system. Uh, and this time we had to ask, what kind of fields do you want to fill in? And that was a whole new product that they had to purchase. One of the, one of the challenges I faced myself when like 
proposing research is that clients often say, yeah, we have tons of research. You don't have to do it. Uh, we, whatever you want to know, we have it here. You, you just ask and we can provide it. But it, it's then my job to kind of take it, read into it, understand what's going on, and then form this good question so I know what else I need to ask. And if that's like is this research still valid, then that's also uh, a reason to do research, right? To like, I think what you're also asking is, what is the difference between research, which the clients might have in abundance, and an insight? Um, and so no customer research sounds a bit like this. Insert cricket sound. Um, but uh, getting a survey back... Uh, or interviews sounds a bit like this. And it is your job to turn it into an insight for the business, right? And that takes a few different steps. Some of, if you're doing dealing with interviews, uh, you're gonna have to sort this into themes. And if you're dealing with survey data, you're gonna have to sort this into graphs. But graphs and themes uh, are still not interesting by themselves. And um, it's still up to you to interpret that, that pattern uh, understand where the outliers are, as we mentioned before, uh, and turn this into something that the client can use. So process it, basically. Understand it, process it, and make a recommendation out of it. Is that is that correct? Yeah, distilling it into a crystal clear step forward. I think it was a crystal clear explanation of what the power of insights are. We learned that research doesn't really have to be that expensive and potentially can save you a lot of money in the long term. So I hope you now know how to convince your boss to do more research. Now let's go back into the specifics again and let's talk about some do's and don'ts while doing research. Cool. Let's say I have convinced my boss that we need to do research. I have picked my method to use. I have set up my question uh, that I like to ask in the research. I go into the research. What are things I can expect to go wrong? Things I should look out for? Or maybe things that could help me in the process to get to the best results. You know what you want to get out of each step of your research. So from your from your first particular method, it's going to be asking this type of question and you're expecting an answer in this kind of neighborhood. And then you're going to want to build on that. So we recognize, okay, this will give us a picture of, of challenges and experiences and, and that's a good qualitative piece. But now we want to measure that and scale it. So we're going to add a, a quantitative method. We're going to we're going to do a survey to figure out what is the scale of that challenge or that experience, and we're going to measure it. So I would recommend when you're embarking in this process to really have a clear sense of what you want to get out of each phase. I don't expect you to know what the answer is that you're going to get out of it, because that's why you're doing your research. And you might want, and you should absolutely kind of have the expectation going into this that you're going to be surprised, that you're going to learn things that you didn't expect. I think one nice study that we did, we, we actually, we planned for two phases of research, but we planned for a decision point in the middle. So we are going to do this research up front. We're going to do this first phase and we're going to take a moment to pause and to evaluate, you know, are we going to want to deep dive on one of the findings that we had there? Are we going to want to measure all the findings that we have on a whole? So you can take a moment to evaluate because you are going to, if you're doing your job right, there's going to be things that you don't expect. Uh, anticipate that you didn't realize they might end up being small things and not so important but take a moment to really evaluate that and get a sense of it and uh yeah welcome the surprise welcome the challenge because that will end up giving you the insight at the end and another thing we see people tripping up on is maybe asking the wrong people so we often see clients um 
uh, asking uh, perhaps uh, people who work inside their organizations what their customers want. And that's not the same as asking the customer what they want. So, for example, um, what kind of products does Lego make? Well, they make toys, of course. That's their thing. Yeah, and, and what else? So physical toys, but uh, did you ever play Lego Star Wars? Yeah, I did. Well, they also make uh, digital games, apparently. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. so, so first they uh, sent out a survey to parents and asked, how much time do your kids play video games? And uh, parents underestimated how much time their kids played video games. And from that, they thought that video games wouldn't be a viable business option. Um, but then, speaking back to our mixed methods, they also sent an anthropologist in to sit and uh, sit with the kids while they played. And there they found that the parents had grossly <laughs> underestimated how much time their kids played on uh, digital devices. And um, so from that, they now have a very successful uh, video game range as well. So how would you, like, how would research or the researchers, more importantly, uh, live within an organization because how you just described it are two, two totally different ways of having research or researchers in a company. What would be the ideal? I think it depends on your purpose. So if you are, once again, it depends on the risk of making the wrong decision. So if you if if um, making the wrong decision uh, will be the end of your company, <laughs> it's a good idea to invest a little bit up front. And I have another example about this. Um, so, for example, um, uh, I've got a photo here uh, in front of Bart <laughs> of um, one of the uh, what uh, the Harley Davidsons looked like uh, in the seventies. Do, how different do these look like uh, to to what you guys uh, notice know as Harley Davidson today? It's it's red. It's futuristic. It's everything but Harley Davidson. It it looks like it could go pretty fast. Something that you'd speed through. So this is um, a, a big mistake that almost caused uh, Harley Davidson's ruin in the seventies, where they just they looked at market trends and saw that speed bikes um, was uh, you know the new thing. And they started competing with Japanese brands to create the fastest, uh, cheapest bikes. Um, but they just couldn't compete on price and technology. And so after a couple of years in this direction, um, they found their company completely, almost completely broke. Uh, and they only had a handful of customers left. Um, and at this point is when they decided to uh, reach out to those customers and see why they were actually using the brand. And so they hired an anthropologist who joined something similar to a biker gang, uh, which might have been a really interesting three months. Um, and what he found is that people weren't riding these bikes to be fast. They were riding intentionally slow to ride together. And you can see how that pulls through into what Harley-Davidson has become today. These much more chunkier bikes that you can take on a long road trip that can fit a, a friend or a partner on. Um, and so this is an example of when you invest uh, early or in, you invest in a, a, a question that's going to change the whole, uh, the whole direction of your company. So yeah, this was, I think, derived by competition. So th that's why they made this move. But I think 
in a typical product organization, you want to be ahead of ahead of these kind of changes or trends, right? So then I would assume that you would have like researchers are working continuously on understanding what's changing, what's what are our customers now doing, how do they uh, evolve with our products, etc., so that they can make uh, rather more informed decisions up front instead of like trying to solve a problem that's like seemingly coming ahead or is that correct or yeah to your point mo i think you're absolutely right that it's not always about solving a problem but to to understand what's going on yeah behaviors change um netflix is a great example of this they have all sorts of user data back in 2013 just tons and tons of it of, of how people were using their tool but what they wanted to understand was what what's the story behind this data? What does it mean? So this is when they sent an anthropologist, discovered a new pattern of binge watching, but that binge watching wasn't necessarily something to be ashamed about. It was something actually quite empowering, quite nice, quite comfortable, quite satisfying, I think was the, the term that was used. And then they used this insight as a way to change their 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 business model, their their services that they provide so that they could accelerate their growth, so that they could give the customers what they want. So this is, again, to demonstrate that behaviors, customers, they're fluid, they change, it adapts. So to your point, I absolutely think you're right. I think the closer of a pulse that you can get on your customer, the better. Because, yeah, people change, circumstances change, and it's best to understand what that is so that you can help guide it and you could help shepherd it. And that is the end of this episode. I think we learned a lot about what insights are, what the benefits are of doing good research in projects, and how insights can even steer entire companies into different directions. Of course, a big thank you to Abby and Ollie for their wonderful explanations and stories. Thank you to Mo for co-hosting, and of course, as always, thanking you for listening. To close off, some final words for two guests, Abby and Ollie. I think the most important thing to do is recognize how important scoping your first kind of research question is and to make sure that we align this with the, the client going forward and to make sure that we bring them along on our journey of, of shaping what is the question because that will lead to a more kind of relevant and fruitful uh, project going forward. Uh, be careful not to jump straight into validation. So leave a little bit of room to be, as Holly said, surprised. That's the most fun part about research um, and also where you could really find some excellent opportunities uh, to take your client's business to the next level. Mm-hmm.